This is Chapter 11 of the WCBS 880 Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. In Mozart's starling, nature writer Lyanda Lynn Hout explores the little-known story of the famous composer and his beloved bird. And, as we hear from Lyanda, it's a bird that's hated in the modern world. Bird lovers, conservationists, nature writers like me all hate starlings because they're a non-native invasive species. They compete with native species, especially cavity nesters like sweet little chickadees and bluebirds for uh, coveted nesting spaces. And they also create a ton of agricultural damage. They eat, you know, uh, wine crops. They eat other agricultural crops. And they actually cause $800 million of agricultural damage every single year. So people hate them and they're unprotected. Almost every bird in the country is protected. You know, we're not supposed to disturb the nest eggs or nestlings of any bird at all. Just a few are unprotected by the wildlife department. And one of them is the starlings. They actually encourage us to remove their nests and eggs when we find them. It's a crazy juxtaposition, but... It turns out you and your research have found that Mozart adopted a pet starling, and it's a bird that he absolutely adored. Tell us, how did he come to own this bird? Right. And you're right. It is a crazy juxtaposition because Mozart is one of our most beloved composers in Western music, right? This sublime compositions. And here it turns out he had as his pet and was inspired by this hated bird. So the dissonance there really uh, inspired me to look further and, and see what was going on. So he found this bird in a pet shop in Vienna where he lived. And mysteriously, it seems that the bird could sing a short line, a motif from a concerto that he had written the month before, but had not yet been publicly performed. Uh, The bird changed it a little bit, and it's a mystery. I explore that mystery in the book of how it might have come to to know the motif. But Mozart recorded in his book that he bought, he carried this little notebook where he recorded every expense that he made. Um, I think his wife made him do it because he was such a bad spender. I think she, you know, checked his notebook (laughs) at the end of every day. Um, He recorded in his little notebook that he bought the bird for three kreutzer, which is almost nothing. Um, They were a very common native species where Mozart lived at the time. Uh, This is in the 1780s. Um, He wrote down the way that he himself had written the motif and the way the bird sang it. And beneath he he wrote, that was wonderful. So a lot of bird biographers have said, you know, this it probably made Mozart really paranoid that somehow his work got out into the world, someone had stolen it or imitated it, and that's how starling the starling and all starlings are gifted mimics. They can imitate music, they can imitate sounds, they can imitate the human voice. So it wasn't a surprise that he could sing it, the bird could sing it. It was a surprise how he learned to sing it. Um, but it sounds from his comment in his notebook that Mozart wasn't angry at all, but he said that was wonderful. He, he loved it. He was inspired enough to take the bird home, and he lived with it for three years until the bird died. We don't know what Mozart named the bird. Um, one person who talked about Mozart's bird in writing said that he had named it Star, but all he wrote in his notebook was Vogelstar, which was the German word for starling. So I think that this commenter sort of mistook that note for his name, but I thought, well, in telling the tale, it's easiest to have a name for the bird. So I, I took that on and called it Star and um, imagined the bird as being named Star, which is a perfectly lovely name, and I acknowledge in the book that it's imagined. 
And you believe this bird influenced some of his uh, compositions, and you specifically mention a character in the Magic Flute and a not-so-popular piece called A Musical Joke. Right. So the musical joke was not uh, my own discovery, the connection between the starling and the musical joke, but a uh, scientist, uh, ethologist, actually, someone who studies bird behavior. Her name is Meredith West. She wrote a paper in American Scientist way back in 1990 showing similarities between this hated piece of Mozart's work. It's called A Musical Joke. It's a, it's a really weird arrangement of instruments with French horns and a bass and um Musicians hated playing that piece in Mozart's time and now because it makes them sound like really bad musicians. It takes all of these crazy, you know, kind of musically non-harmonic elements and throws them in seemingly seemingly random order. Uh, But what Meredith West showed in her paper is that all of the musical problems with that piece from the standpoint of musicians perfectly mimic the song of a starling. So there are these fractured phrases, there are moments of beauty, and then they break into unexpected disharmony. And so she overlaid recordings of the starling's voice with recordings of the musical joke and found them to overlap wonderfully. And so I did the same thing. I live with the starling. I I know we're going to get to that. Um, And I did the same thing, recording her voice and playing this music for her. And they they just, they come together um, in a kind of very strange harmony. But the character I noticed that influenced, uh, that might have been um, created under the influence of Mozart's time with his starling is a character, Papageno. He's a bird catcher, kind of a, a feathery creature in the magic flute, the opera, the magic flute. And he's kind of half bird, half man. And he sings these really chipper songs. He's mischievous, but he's smart. He's kind of a trickster figure. And he mirrors the personality of the starling exactly. And it's just hard not to imagine that in uh, bringing the character of Papageno to life, Mozart didn't have his starling, who by that time had passed, in mind. And this bird, he was extremely fond of it. You talk a little bit, which is known about the funeral that he gave it and also the eulogy that he penned for it. That's right. It's kind of a odd element to the story that Mozart's father died in 1787, early in that year. And then just two months later, the starling died. And when Leopold, Mozart's father, died, he was in Salzburg. And Mozart was living in Vienna. And there's been a great to-do made by biographers that uh, Mozart did not travel to his own father's funeral. And they blame it on, you know, Leopold being so authoritarian and their relationship being fraught. But the truth is, Mozart was broke. His wife, Constanza, had a septic leg. They had two young children. He had all these compositions to perform. He just simply could not go to Salzburg. But two months later, when his starling died, he gave it a formal funeral in his garden. And yeah, he had live music that he composed, and he penned a beautiful poem just for the bird that shows a deep understanding of the starling personality and actually his sadness over its loss. 
So people that mention this funeral in their biographies, the bird doesn't get a lot of mention in the in the work on Mozart. So I've had to sort of find what little bits there are. Um, but people suggest that um, that Mozart had the funeral as a joke because he did have a wonderful sense of humor. And and I think that that's true, that it would have appealed to his sense of absurdity in a wonderful way. Um, but they also say that maybe it was a transference of his grief for not or guilt even for not attending his father's funeral and i think that's possibly true too because maybe the ritual vessel of the funeral could have been very healing for him um but a third possibility that no one mentioned but i don't think that anyone who has lived with a starling like i have and mozart did could argue that he also had the funeral because he loved the bird And he was sorrowful and felt the loss of its passing very keenly, especially at that sad time of his life. So let's go to your story of adopting a starling and living with it as you set out to write this book. Along the way, you've come to realize why Mozart may have been so drawn to the bird, haven't you? I have. And I want to insert a caveat here that, um, again, nests and eggs and nestlings are protected Um, because starlings are not protected, I heard of a nest that was going to be removed where the nestlings had already hatched. And so that's the bird that I stole slash rescued for (laughs) research. It was one that would have died anyway. So, um, and while it's actually illegal to remove the nest, it's not legal in most states to keep one as a pet. So (laughs) I'm not encouraging this. So far, the starling police haven't come, but, um, (laughs) What I learned in living with the bird is a couple of things. One, um, her participation orally, vocally, in our household is so profound. She has learned to mimic so many of the sounds that we make. She says, hi, her name's Carmen. She says, hi, Carmen, you know, the sound, the greeting that we use most often with her. Hi, honey, that little sound that we use to call animals. She imitates our microwave oven, our coffee grinder. She comes to life when we play music. She just loves to participate vocally. And not only that, she, and and this is the huge thing that I've learned that is not um, evidenced very much in the scientific literature on starlings, just because you have to learn it by living with one in your house, not in a lab. You need this kind of constant um, connection. I've learned that she doesn't just randomly mimic phrases. She anticipates what we're going to do and then joins in with the appropriate sound. So in the morning, when I come down the stairs, she says what I would normally say the first thing. She says, hi, Carmen. And then when the cat comes behind me, she looks at the cat and says, meow, to the cat. And when I open the microwave door, before the sound comes, she says, beep, beep, beep. So she's anticipating and joining in with the music of the household in her way. Um, so I, I know that that happened in Mozart's musical household. You know, he had lessons, he was rehearsing, he was composing at the piano constantly. Haydn came over and they played together, you know, so there was constant music and from living with a starling, I know that they cannot sit still when music is playing. They join in with their voices. And so there had to be this great sort of chaotic, you know, composer starling symphony going on constantly in Mozart's home. I love to think of it. 
And I know that you mentioned uh, Carmen loves music, but she's not a big fan of Mozart. Oh, yes. It's so annoying. When I (laughs) set out to write this book, I had this great vision that she would learn the motif, you know, and this is a little, it's so short and she's a capable mimic. So I played it for her over and over. It's the only thing I actually tried to teach her. I let her otherwise just sort of imitate what, what she wanted to. Um, But starlings are very contrary and very choosy about what they learn. And she had no interest in learning this motif. And not only that, as I said, she comes to life almost always when we play music. But when we put Mozart on, she doesn't pay that much attention. She It's this sublime, beautiful music. She sits there picking at her feathers. Um, you know. But when I put on Bach, she gets really excited and joins in. And her very favorite music in the world is bluegrass. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of funny. But I will say um, a couple things about the Mozart music. And this I have found to be so intriguing. She, well, she doesn't care for Mozart much. When I play the the starling-like uh, cadenzas from um, the musical joke, she joins in with those. She perks up and she listens and she becomes interested and joins in. And the same with the arias of Papageno. They're very, it's very chirpy. Um, if anyone's familiar with the magic flute, sometimes the, there's a long section of that opera that kind of drags and then these arias by this bird character uh, bring it to life. And Carmen seems to respond to those as well. It's like she can sense that there's a kindred spirit in that music. I think it, it is as if she can. And one thing that I've thought about a lot is when I step outside my own threshold of the door of my house into the world is that Carmen's not unique at all that all of the starlings are engaging in this wonderful participation, um, vocal participation, um, listening participation in their world. Um, it, it implies great intelligence and consciousness and a uh, sense of relationship to sound and self. Um, but starlings are just one of, of you know thousands of species that have not been studied yet. And so I think of the unique intelligences that are surrounding me in all of the creatures that we see and don't see, you know, in our everyday lives that are, that are above the ground or beneath the ground or seeing us or not seeing us, um, that these intelligences that are constantly surrounding us, that I, I'm just feeling more engaged with the ever present consciousness of the non-human world or the more than human world. What do you hope people take away from your book about Mozart and about starlings? Mozart has been called a very urban composer, not attuned to nature. And I have learned that that's just wrong. He had a collection of bird prints. He had a collection of science and uh, books on natural history of animals and plants that were all well-thumbed. And he found a kindred spirit in, you know, a creature of nature. As I said there, it was not a hated, not an invasive species, just a, just a pretty bird. And at Mozart's time, it was common for people to keep birds as kind of a status symbol. So there were expensive birds that came from Australia, like parrots, singing canaries that came then actually from the Canary Islands. And instead, Mozart was super uh, status conscious. But instead of choosing one of those birds, he chose this 
cheap common bird. So it says to me that he didn't just want any bird, he wanted this bird. And he was drawn to the intelligence, the mischievousness, the friendliness of the starling. And what I hope people will bring from that is that sure, starlings are hated in this country and with good reason. And if I could get rid of them, I would. But we can find, like Mozart, inspiration uh, and constantly in the world around us and oftentimes in places that we had not thought to look. We just talked about birds, so let's turn our attention to bees and trees and pollen. If you think allergy season seems to start earlier every year, you weren't wrong. Dr. Clifford Bassett, founder and medical director of Allergy and Asthma Care of New York and author of The New Allergy Solution, says there are a number of reasons why allergies are on the rise. Well, we have millions of Americans suffering from allergies, and we know the rate is growing. So what are the causes? Climate change, air pollution, globalization, even perhaps over-sanitizing the early years of life. And these are just a few causes taken together in my new book that have, we believe, ramped up what we call the allergy load in our environment. And we also know that allergies may be affecting more people in urban areas or cities and rural areas. In fact, there's a study out of Baltimore showing that carbon dioxide may be higher in the inner city versus the suburbs, and that may tell plants the message, produce more pollen. We also know because of climate change, the pollen season is lasting longer, and as a result of that, there's more pesky pollen that's able to get into her eyes and nose this season to cause misery. Hence, Dr. Bassett, my patients say, write a book, and that's what we've done, the new allergy solution, talking about long-lasting relief, working with your allergist and finding the best solutions that work, and adjunctive treatments that also are non-medical in nature to complement the excellent traditional approaches we already have. For more information, check out Dr. Bassett's website, allergyreliefnyc.com. That brings this week's chapter to an end. Please let us know what you think about our podcast. Email us at books at WCBS880.com and follow us at WCBS880books on Twitter and Instagram.